Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 22, and we're dealing with a number of things. First is the arrival in the Cape of an influential Muslim cleric called Sheikh Yusuf's Al-Taj al-Kalwari al-Makassari. He was to have a major impact on the colony. We'll also hear about what was going on across southern Africa in the first two decades of the 18th century, a time of major change which set the tone for the expansion of colonialism for the next 200 years. Sheikh Yusuf, as he was known, was exiled to the Cape from his home in Java in 1694 and was settled at Sandflee on the False Bay coast along with 50 of his followers. The VOC officials were highly aware of his influence and attempts were made to isolate him from the mass of the Cape population, but these failed. In 1684, Yusuf had led uprisings in Java against the Dutch and was eventually persuaded to surrender on the promise of a pardon. But the Dutch reneged on the promise and instead imprisoned him at the castle in Batavia. Suspecting that he would attempt to escape, the Dutch then transferred him to Ceylon before exiling him to the Cape. Yusuf, along with his followers, including two wives, two concubines and twelve children, was received in the Cape on the 2nd of April 1694 by Governor Simon van der Stel himself. By isolating Sheikh Yusuf far away from De Kaap Fortress, he was able to maintain contact with Cape Town slaves, particularly the woodcutters. As they roamed the landscape looking for trees, they would make their way to Sheikh Yusuf's home and began receiving religious education. It soon proved to be a rallying point for fugitive slaves and other Asians who escaped the VOC rule. This was the Muslim Underground Railroad that worried company officials constantly. Sheikh Yusuf, though, died at Sunfleet on the 23rd of May, 1699, and the area surrounding the farm was renamed Makassar after his place of birth. He was buried on the hills of Four, overlooking Makassar itself. During the rest of the 18th century, a small but growing Islamic community could be found based on brotherhoods and a wider circle of sympathizers. It's suggested that when Sheikh Yusuf's period of exile was ended at the same time that Governor Simon van der Stel left, his family took elements of religious ideas and organizations developed in South Africa back to Java. There were still no mosques in South Africa at the time. These would only follow right at the end of VOC rule later in the 1700s. But other leaders, such as Sheikh Nurman, provided much support for the slaves. The Cape was growing an intellectual link between Asian Islam and European Christianity. This would have historical effects, as we'll hear over the series. Both Islam and Christianity mattered quite early on in the history of the Cape and South Africa. The modern nation in the 21st century has a tiny Muslim population, less than 2%, but it would be crucial in the formation of racial definitions, as would Christianity. Although I've explained it's anachronistic to think of this period as those who were black and white fighting each other. That's a construct of the 20th century. It was Christian versus heathen, burger versus company official, or burger versus Khoisan. Unlike other colonized regions such as Brazil or Spanish America, manumission at the Cape was always low. Fewer than three Cape slaves per 1,000 could expect to be freed except by running away, and even urban slaves could generally not expect to receive their legal freedom. Brazil and Spanish-American manumission was six times higher. In the Cape, most of the freed were women, and some even married the burghers. Other freed slaves were usually owned by free blacks living in the Cape, and likely to have been their relative at times. Meanwhile, the roaming free burghers had begun to cause chaos along the borders of the colony in the first decade of the 18th century. Governor Willem Adrian van der Stel was shown evidence that gangs of colonists up to 50 strong had been journeying deep into the interior, at least 100 miles, which was a long way, in 1705, and their plan was to wage war. I explained how plunder had increased and this was to cause ripples of response amongst the Khoi further inland. 
The effect of smallpox still had not been felt amongst the Namaqua, for example, but these raids were having a destabilizing effect on relationships. I mentioned also the group of 45 burghers who journeyed 15 days along the east coast. This band of rogues had made a covenant not to betray each other to the VOC and had even jointly signed a blank book called Die Christelijke Zeefahrt, The Christian Voyage. The link between covenant and Christians voyaging over the felt had been established and was a constant narrative from here on in. Van der Stel ordered the trade with the Namaklas and the Ubiklas and Kukumans closed and ordered an investigation after he heard about this raid. Needless to say, the blank book covenant meant the inquiry led nowhere. A year later, in 1704, the Heeren 17 back in Amsterdam ordered that the trade begin again. But William Adrian van der Stel's days were numbered. His parceling out of land I mentioned last episode had caught the attention of the Heeren 17. Van der Stel now owned the private estate Vergelichen, which was the foundation of the present-day Somerset West and its wine route. He granted himself, in 1700, that land, and he spent much of the VOC resources on its development. This allowed him an unfair advantage and led to strained relationships with the local free burghers, as you've heard. His unilateral actions determining who could participate in the monopoly of wine and meat and eventually triggered a revolt amongst the farmers led by a man called Adam Tuss. Tuss was born in Amsterdam and arrived in the Cape in 1697 as a free burger to take up quarters with his uncle, Henning Hussing. Unlike most burghers, he was well-educated and his diary, albeit carefully edited later by the VOC, proves interesting reading. Hussing was the wealthiest farmer in the Cape and soon van der Stel was referring to Adam Tuss as an idle fellow for to go lounging up and down and every day about the neighbourhood be wagging a forward tongue. Now, why would Tuss be wagging a forward tongue? We know now it is because he realised swiftly that William Adrian van der Stel was corrupt and he would eventually bring about van der Stel's downfall, but not before his own. Philip was not too far wrong about Adam Tuss, who in his diary admitted he liked nothing more than to while away the hours with sweet and intimate discourse over a cheerful pipe of tobacco. Then in 1703, an incident occurred which would drive Van der Stel into a rage. Adam Tuss married a wealthy farmer's widow by the name of Elizabeth van Brakel. She was now the owner of a property described as handsome and in excellent condition. The governor wrote scornfully that, Within this grassy clover meadow this canting rogue did attain unto an easeful, fortunate and right pleasant estate. Van der Stel didn't stop there. He really let rip. But... With this unfamiliar affluency, this gotten in a twinkling, there was no keeping of oneself within the limits of discretion, and with his confraternity he must be spending days and nights in swilling and doping and feasting and junketing. Well, that sounds a little like William Adran himself. But he wasn't finished yet, saying that Adam Tuss would invite friends and each man dress his table with dishes ten and twelve, bespread with tarts and pastries, turkeys and geese and capons and the rest, until that with these roisterings they did begin to forge presumptuous, lecherous and overweening extravagances, for to disturb the governor his repose, and with infatuate and abandoned naughtiness to trample underfoot the general peace and quiet. Didn't like him then. The real story was Madrian's own abandoned naughtiness. And within three years, Adam Tuss and the other freeburgers of the Cape found themselves threatened with utter ruin because of the governor's freebooting. The monopoly of the VOC had begun to grate these men and women. The movement that Tuss began in 1705 was not always honourable. 
It was inspired by self-interest of the conspirators, but the mutterings and murmurings against van der Stel increased in volume extremely rapidly. So it was then that Adam Tuss and 53 of the 550 Freeburgers around Stellenbosch and Drakenstein signed a petition demanding the VOC remove the corrupt van der Stel and he should be sent back to Amsterdam. The petition was at first rejected by the Heerden 17, but as he heard from Willem, he was seething long before he had Adam Tuss arrested, tried and imprisoned, thrown into the black hole and infamous dungeon at the castle of Good Hope. He was to remain there for 13 months and 17 days, eventually being released in April 1707. Because 31 of the original signatories of the petition were Huguenots, and since the Netherlands was at war with France, the failed petition continued to cause concern in Amsterdam. They feared that their discontent might cause some of the burghers to become spies for the French, so the VOC dismissed van der Stel and ordered him to return to the Netherlands. Van der Stel in turn demanded that Adam Tuss hand over all his documents, including his daily diaries. The outcome was that only two years remain of these diaries. William Adrian and the VOC appear to have destroyed the others. These documents were supposed to be used by the now ex-governor in his defence, proving Tuss's treachery. After securing them aboard his ship, William Adrian sailed back to Holland with Adam Tuss's entire writing desk stashed below decks. South Africa's colonial fast and loose approach to the sanctity of documents had begun. Van der Stel finally left the colony in 1708 and returned to the Netherlands, where he spent the rest of his life in exile. Three years after his dismissal, his large property, Vergelechen, was sold and divided into four separate farms, and Willem's ostentatious homestead was ordered to be demolished. Subsequently, no VOC employees were allowed to own land in the colony, and Louis van Assenberg became his successor. So Tuss had his revenge finally, which, as we all know, is a meal best eaten cold. It was written that when Adam Tuss and fellow conspirators were set free from the dungeons, not any pen may express with what jubilation and tokens of rejoicing they were embraced and bidden welcome by the well-disposed burghers. Adam Tuss was an elegant writer, and his diary is a crucial piece of South African history, with two years that survived, of course, with Van der Stel's and the VOC's disappearing act. He wrote about the company clergy who he called high-stomached Templars. He described the fears of coy and sand attacks and unfair competition of the company. His diary is packed with personal asides and is extremely entertaining because it's full of him entertaining and being entertained. It's typical of Stellenbosch stories, as in drinking glasses of wine and smoking pipes of tobacco, eating great meals and playing games with friends. On Tuesday, the 7th of July, 1705, for example, he wrote about spending a pleasant morning vine pruning and digging, then taking a horse ride with a friend, Mr. Van der Hayden, to his farm where we talked, drank and smoked mightily, not forgetting the eating, and so at night to rest and sleep. Then the next day, Wednesday, 8th of July, he wrote, Beautiful weather in the morning. On the rising, I discovered that my head ached a good deal, but after drinking coffee with milk, felt well again. Perhaps William Adrian had a point. Adam Tuss basically passed out after his Tuesday shindig. Babalas aside, Adam Tuss's story is the narrative being developed by these early colonists in this part of South Africa. Close-knit, suspicious of bureaucracy and outsiders, hard living and sailing close to the legal limit. By December 1705, Tuss was writing, I learned from a letter that Ortmans, Eames and Bowman are councillors. The Cape now has four councillors, Three men who are hypocrites and lick spittles. By April 1705, these hypocrites and lick spittles 
would have their revenge and Tuss had been flung into the castle dungeon. Over a year later, upon his release, Tuss renamed his farm Libertas, Liberty. This is still a famous estate in the Western Cape today. Adam's wife Elizabeth died in 1714, having borne him four children. And in 1717, he married Johanna Kufal of Leerdam, who bore him one son called Adam. Adam Tuss's story and his diary are both illuminating. There's a perception these days that all the Dutch and the Cape are on some kind of colonial drive with hidden vendettas against all Africans and Khoi. But it was really marked by less of a strategic vision or dream and more of chaos and anarchy. There was intense intra-Dutch conflict and the diversity of experiences on the frontier makes any simplistic view not only anachronistic, it's intellectually crude. The disputes that had grown over half a century of VOC operations in the Cape would drive a new frontier spirit amongst the colonists and their European minders. They were not exploring frontiers in some sort of patriotic mission, but because they were adventurers and there was land to be had. We will dwell in this period a little longer in coming podcasts, as there are fascinating and crucial moments that need more fleshing out. One of these was a decision made by the VOC in 1714 that had far-reaching consequences. By the start of the 1700s, the Cape settlement between the Atlantic Ocean to the west and the mountain ranges to the east was self-sufficient in meat, wine and wheat. It was fully settled, and in 1717, the company put out a temporary halt on immigration. How different to Simon van der Stel's time when even orphans refused to travel to the Cape and where the only people showing an interest were ruffians, at least until the Huguenots pitched up. So in 1714, a momentous decision was taken to permit loan farming or Leningplatt to develop the east of the mountains. For a small fee, a farmer was given the use of at least 6,000 acres on which to graze his cattle for a specific period of time. This was ideal for stock farmers who could lease two such farms and then leave one to live fallow. This allowed the grazing land to recover from the sheep in particular. For the poorer burgher who had failed to obtain land in Stellenbosch and Drakenstein, it was a godsend. The rich clique of wheat and wine farming gentry looked down on these burghers and they also began to experience their own domestic issues. Simply put, their young sons had no land. Many of these young men were pressing to move beyond the mountains for a chance to start their own farms, and they were particularly interested in livestock. The intensive agriculture of viticulture and wheat was not going to be possible in most parts of the region north of the mountains, as it was labor-intensive. Many adventurous men began to trek north into the interior and take up their Leningsplatzen. Like the immigrants from Europe a generation before, they were simply going where opportunity lay and the prospect of a livelihood beckoned. A similar process was underway in North America at precisely the same point, something that Noel Mostad writes about so well in his book Frontiers. A tiny layer of colonists spread out over a vast area of the northern and eastern Cape extremely rapidly from here on. By the end of the 18th century, the area of European occupation had increased tenfold since the beginning of the century encompassing an area of 286,000 square kilometres. There were only two settlers per square kilometre, with the greatest density lying between Cape Town and Stellenbosch. But outside of this area, and into the drier regions around Tulbach and along the eastern Cape coast, the number dropped to one settler per 10 square kilometres. In the same way that the settlers emptied the felt of animals later with the unrelenting hunting for ivory and skins, they had emptied the felt of cattle for some distance around the southern Cape, by the early part of the 1700s. By 1705, Johannes Stadenberg, the new Landrost of Stellenbosch, was sent on an expedition to try and buy trek oxen from the nearby Koikwe. 
His instructions were to confine operations to Koi adjacent to the colony since those further inland appeared more hostile. He duly travelled with the company chief gardener, Jan Hartog, who was to report on the fertility of land further north. It's an invaluable glimpse of the region travelling north from the Picketbach to the Fulure Flay area inland. Here Stadenberg encountered some Griquas who told the travellers that Dutch settlers had ransacked their villages and stolen their livestock. Later, Stadenberg made it to Fieren Twintigrefieren, or 24 rivers, and noted despondently that although the Koikoi had boasted no fewer than 10 captains, they only found two kraals, or traditional settlements. Furthermore, during five weeks of travelling, Stadenberg only managed to barter 57 cattle. A few years later, the smallpox epidemic would wipe out many Koi living in the Southern Cape, as you've heard in my previous podcast. With peace between the Dutch and the Koi concluded after a three-year period of instability up to 1705, colonial farmers believed it was now safe enough to pasture their livestock north of the Berg River in the vicinity of the Pickenbach. Hunting parties had long travelled through this area, some even as far as the Ulifants River. It was the area to the south of the Ulifants that interested these new frontiers men. The first Dutch settler there did not have a happy end. Early in 1706, Jakob van Hoeven had a cattle post at the Picketbach, occupied by a shepherd and two male servants, or knechts, by Jan Shazar and Jan Blimsch. The area was wild and dangerous. Eventually, two of his slaves murdered van Hoeven, then tried to convince the knechts that van Hoeven had disappeared while hunting. They were executed. However, it was the lone farm decision of 1714 that had catapulted this area into a new form of livestock frontier development. With that, we'll end this episode. Next, we'll hear more about what happened through to 1716 with another Khoi Dutch war breaking out and more young men who began building their ranches far from the influence of the VOC at the Kaap. We will also return to the Amatkoza and pick up their story in early 1700. Please rate the podcast on your platform of choice. You can contact me directly on Twitter at Des Latham or through the site desmondlatham.blog Until next week Totsies Thank you.